Hello, you're listening to Global Questions, the podcast breaking down international news and politics. I'm Hugh. And I'm Joshua. And as the name of the episode would suggest, this is The Wrap Up, your fortnightly dose of news from around the world. And I feel like we have a pretty interesting and important mix of stories for our listeners this fortnight. Yeah, exactly. So how about we get the ball rolling and head straight into it? We can hear regular bursts of automatic gunfire. We can hear the thump of RPGs like that one. We've seen somebody shooting from the top of a building and the army are now trying to work out how to contain this situation which escalated so rapidly. Hugh, our first story takes place in Beirut in Lebanon, which has been plunged into the worst violence seen in the city in decades. A few days ago, clashes between Christian and Muslim militias turned the city effectively into a war zone. There were gun battles, rocket-propelled grenades were fired, and tanks rolled through the streets. At least seven people were killed, and although the army was able to restore calm, the city is still on a knife's edge. Yeah, it sounds really uh, intense. What triggered that violence? Well, it all links back to the Beirut port explosion, which I'm sure many of us remember really, really well. Large parts of Beirut are in ruins tonight, and the people of Lebanon are attempting to assess the catastrophic damage and the rising human toll from a blast that shook the capital. As we've talked about on the wrap-up before, Lebanon has been in chaos since that explosion. The government collapsed, the value of Lebanon's currency dropped by 90%, and there have been chronic food and medicine shortages. And more than a year later, those problems still remain unsolved. That's largely due to the fact that Lebanon is made up of 18 religious factions, which makes it extremely hard to form a stable government. However, in the midst of all of the chaos, there's been one glimmer of hope. A judge investigating the blast has called on powerful politicians to give evidence, and he's actually uncovered evidence of negligence and corruption. The families of people who died in the blast have praised the judge for holding these politicians accountable, but of course, the politicians themselves have accused the judge of bias, and they've called on the various religious factions that support them to go out and protest. And that's exactly what led to the violence last week. Supporters of these politicians, who are mostly from Hezbollah and Muslim factions, took to the streets, calling for the judge to be fired. But while they were protesting, snipers from rival Christian factions started firing on them. From there, it quickly escalated into armed conflict. It took four hours for the army to bring the situation under control. Yeah, it sounds like a terrifying experience to everyone involved. Yeah, especially in light of Lebanon's history. So this is a country that endured a 15-year civil war during the 1970s and 80s as these same religious factions fought each other. And more than 100,000 people were killed during that war. People who live in Beirut say that last week's violence was like watching that same civil war unfold all over again. Mm, And I imagine, you know, the question on many people's minds, including my own, 
uh, would be whether this could sort of spiral into a new civil war. Yeah, it's a very real fear. There's so much pent-up anger among the Lebanese people. They've watched their country literally collapse over the past few years, and three-quarters of the population now live in poverty. And what's more, tensions over this judicial inquiry aren't likely to go away anytime soon. So the politicians being investigated are still demanding that the judge be fired, and they've even threatened to bring down Lebanon's government if they don't get their way. Meanwhile, opposing factions on the other side say that they'll retaliate if the judge is removed. And all of this infighting and paralysis is really a perfect example of why Lebanon is in the state that it's in. The divisions that tore the country apart decades ago still remain. And unless they're somehow resolved, the future of the Lebanese people looks pretty bleak at the moment. Afghanistan on the agenda too at this virtual G20 meeting, led by Italy, Prime Minister Mario Draghi warned of a humanitarian disaster. Well, Josh, as you would have just heard, leaders representing the world's largest economies recently gathered online for an extraordinary meeting of the G20 to discuss the ongoing situation in Afghanistan. And you see, world leaders are dealing with some pretty big problems at the moment when it comes to the country. And those issues were discussed very extensively over the online meeting. Yeah, I can imagine they had a lot to discuss. I mean, the situation in Afghanistan since America withdrew has been incredibly messy. So what were the major items on the agenda? There's two problems really on the agenda. Uh, For one, world leaders have to grapple with the fact that the Taliban is effectively functioning as a government now. And that raises some important questions regarding whether the international community should treat them as a legitimate government or not. Uh, And secondly, without the financial and material assistance which was previously provided to Afghanistan by the US and its allies, the country is now facing a major humanitarian crisis. The country is facing conflict, drought, and the shortage of international aid is already hitting the population days after the US military ended its mission in the country. Tragically, more than 10 million Afghans are currently facing serious food shortages as a result of the situation. So there's a lot on the world's plate right now when it comes to this issue. And did they reach a decision on how to address those food shortages? They had to walk a fine line because they know that if they want to help relieve the ongoing humanitarian crisis, that's going to require working alongside the Taliban authorities to fund things like age projects. And at that point, we start running into that issue of international recognition of the Taliban government. And I think there's no better example of leaders facing this problem than in the European Union. You see, European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen has argued that the Afghan people should not pay the price of the Taliban's actions. We need to help. It is our moral responsibility. And not only to help the Afghans arriving here in Spain, but also those who have remained in Afghanistan. And she's been joined by other major European figures, such as outgoing German Chancellor Angela Merkel, who has said that the international community cannot stand by and, quote, watch as 40 million people fall into chaos. So the Europeans have actually pledged over a billion euros to support Afghanistan's recovery. But of course, that level of support is always going to require cooperation with the Taliban, And indeed, EU representatives have already met with Taliban officials in what Brussels insisted was a purely technical meeting that didn't constitute European recognition of the Taliban government. But as I'm sure is fairly obvious at this point, 
the EU is now in a very difficult position when it comes to dealing with the Taliban. Yeah, as is the whole world, really. I mean, they're effectively funding an organisation they've been fighting for the last 20 years. But let's talk about the situation on the ground in Afghanistan at the moment. We've heard a lot of promises from the Taliban about human rights. Have they been keeping those promises from what we know? Yeah, you're right to point that out. To answer your question, no, they haven't been keeping their promises. Uh, UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres slammed the Taliban for breaking its promises on human rights, and he focused particularly on the treatment of ethnic minorities and women. I am particularly alarmed to see promises made to Afghan women and girls by the Taliban being broken. Broken promises lead to broken dreams. In central Afghanistan, hundreds of ethnic Hazara, who are a Shiite ethnic minority, have been forced from their homes by the Taliban. According to local community leaders, thousands of people are now homeless. They're living in valleys, riversides and caves. They've lost not just their homes, but farms, animals and their annual products. And unfortunately, the Taliban has long oppressed the Hazara, so the fact that that impression isn't just continuing but getting worse doesn't exactly suggest that the Taliban have improved their human rights record. And it's actually led Muslim countries such as Turkey and Indonesia to try and convince the Taliban to change that approach based on the Islamic faith. But at any rate, while diplomats negotiate, millions of Afghans continue to face hunger and persecution. So unfortunately, this story is far from over. The maritime boundary between the parties having been determined the court expects that each party will fully respect the sovereignty, sovereign rights and jurisdiction of the other in accordance with international law. That was the president of the International Court of Justice, the UN's top court. And she was announcing a major decision, that the court had decided to redraw the maritime border between Somalia and Kenya. And in doing so, the court gave Somalia control over part of the ocean that Kenya had claimed as its own. And the decision caused a huge ruckus last week, with both governments threatening each other and Kenya saying that it will ignore the court's judgment. Okay, that sounds like a pretty huge decision. And I guess it's not every day that borders are shifted around. Um, so what made the court take that decision? Well, to understand why, we've got to take a quick look at Africa's geography. So Somalia and Kenya are both located on the continent's east coast, right next to the ocean. And for decades, they've argued over who should control a 100,000 square kilometre section of the ocean that's right alongside each country. And to put that in context, that's an area about the size of Portugal, so it's pretty big. Now, the reason why both countries want this area is because it reportedly contains huge amounts of oil and gas. So whoever owns this area controls millions of dollars of natural resources. And for some time, the countries tried to reach a diplomatic agreement on how they'd share the area, but of course, it fell through. So in 2014, Somalia decided to take the matter to the International Court of Justice. Madam President, members of the court, good afternoon. And nearly everything that could go wrong in the case went wrong. It was delayed by six years, Kenya didn't send any lawyers to the hearing, and a map of the ocean, which was supposedly a key piece of evidence, mysteriously went missing. 
Then, just before the court announced its decision, Kenya withdrew from the case altogether, claiming that the court was biased. The delivery of the judgment will be the culmination of a flawed judicial process that Kenya has had reservations with. The court persisted anyway, and it gave Somalia control over most of the area last week. Wow, okay, so how did both governments respond to that outcome? Because it's quite big. Yeah, well, unsurprisingly, Somalia was very happy. Its president declared Somalians had successfully recaptured the ocean and demanded that Kenya respect the decision. The Kenyan president, meanwhile, lashed out at the court. Kenya wishes to indicate that it rejects in totality and does not recognise the findings in the decision. At the moment, Kenya plans to ignore the ruling. And is it allowed to do that, to ignore the ruling? Yeah, well, technically it is. So although all members of the UN are supposed to follow the court's decisions, there's actually no way to force a country to do so. Mm, Right, okay. So presuming Kenya does ignore the decision, uh, what happens next? Honestly, it's anyone's guess. So Kenya's president has hinted that he might take military action to defend Kenya's claim. In what could point to Kenya's readiness to flex its military might on Somalia, the president vowed to use any means to protect the country's territorial integrity. However, experts say it's unlikely there'll be a war, as Somalia really lacks a functioning military, and both countries really depend on each other for trade and security. And I think that's the real tragedy of this case. Even if military action doesn't occur, the dispute has already damaged cooperation between both countries. So as the case grew increasingly bitter, we saw both countries evict each other's diplomats, they imposed trade restrictions and suspended flights between both countries. And not only has this hurt ordinary Somalians and Kenyans who travel between both countries to find work, but it could wind up helping a common enemy of both countries. That enemy is Al-Shabaab, a terrorist group based in Somalia that frequently carries out horrific attacks throughout the region. The attack on a bus in northern Kenya has killed at least 28 people. The Somalia-based militant group Al-Shabaab has claimed responsibility. The attack took- Kenya has helped Somalia combat Al-Shabaab over the years, but with both countries at each other's throats, that partnership is now under threat, and it's actually giving Al-Shabaab a chance to regroup and grow in power. Now, that could have flow-on effects for the entire region's security, so it really is in everyone's interest for Somalia and Kenya to find a workable solution to this ocean dispute. And I guess we can only hope that they indeed manage to do that. The United States has already lost the cyber war to China. That's according to the Pentagon's first ever chief software officer who resigned last week in protest at the slow pace. So Josh, in a pretty shocking development, one of the US military's leading cybersecurity officials has resigned over what he called kindergarten level security standards in the Pentagon. Uh, Nicholas Chalon, the official in question, was actually the Pentagon's first chief software officer and he'd been charged with boosting cybersecurity across the military. 
with a number of US departments and military service branches having been subject to major hacking attempts in the past few years, Chalon seems to be using his resignation as a method of drawing attention to the dire situation. Um, okay, this is supposed to be the leader of the free world that we're talking about here, you know, a country that spends trillions on defence. So I'd kind of expect the US to have better cybersecurity than that. Yeah, you're right to point that out, and this might come as a bit of a shock, but his main warning was that he believes the US has already lost the digital race to China. Uh, in his own words, Chalon said that the US has, quote, no competing fighting chance against China in the next 50 to 20 years. Now, understandably, that's triggered a wave of concern across Washington, such that Chalon has actually been invited to testify before Congress. So did he give any reasons as to why the situation is so bad in the US? Yeah, according to Chalon, US officials within the Pentagon aren't giving cybersecurity the attention that it deserves. So despite being charged with fixing the Pentagon's cybersecurity, which is obviously a really big and important job, Chalon says his team received no permanent funding and didn't even have a permanent working space. He also says that cybersecurity officials aren't being given high enough positions or enough funding within their organizations to achieve the kind of results that are being demanded from them. But he says that with the current level of leadership, the US is setting its critical infrastructure up to fail. So what types of critical infrastructure is he talking about here? Well, critical infrastructure could be roads, rail, uh, but it's also things like national security infrastructure. And so when you think of the Pentagon, you're probably not thinking that that's something that would be particularly vulnerable to attacks, but it is. And that's part of the reason why Chalon has resigned. I think a lot of our listeners would have at least heard of something called the solar winds hack. We've got a developing story to talk about the U.S. Treasury and uh, Commerce Department among the federal agencies that were victim of a massive cyber attack on the U.S. government was far more wide-reaching than previously thought. Unprecedented. And that was a major cyber attack which saw Russian-backed hackers gain access to numerous critical government departments. So that included the Pentagon, but it also included the State Department, uh, the Treasury, and the Department of Homeland Security. So the fact that some Russian hackers were able to gain access and monitor those organizations from the inside uh, is obviously catastrophic. So how do you think all of this is going to play out as competition between China and the US increases? Yeah, so not everyone will be convinced that Chalon's concerns are proportionate, but I think as Congress hears his testimony and compares what he says to uh, the recent cyber attacks on the US government, it'll become pretty clear that Washington has a big problem on its hands. Even outside the cyber realm, the US appears to be losing ground to Beijing in the information space. Uh, recently, the CIA distributed a top secret cable to its staff, warning them that their contacts may no longer be trustworthy. And that's been a result of efforts by leading US rivals such as China, Russia and Iran uh, to mop up CIA networks and remove informants. And that effectively leaves Washington without a clear idea of what's going on around the world. So it seems that the US needs to invest a serious effort into rebuilding its espionage capabilities and developing proper cybersecurity as quickly as possible. Yeah, you can imagine that they'd want to allocate some funds to that pretty fast. Well, that is all for this fortnight's edition of The Wrap-Up. Next week's episode will be part two of our in-depth series on the decline of democracy. And I'll be filling in for Rhiannon and chatting to journalism experts about freedom of the press, how it's being undermined in Australia, and why it's so essential for our democracy. 
But until then, follow our Instagram page for news updates, quizzes, and bonus content. You can also get in touch with us and suggest an episode via our website. Links are in the description. We'll see you in a fortnight. Bye.